Greetings everyone on this beautiful Palm Sunday morning. Of course, I'm saying that by faith since this is actually being recorded on Thursday afternoon. But we're winding down our series titled God Encounters, where we're looking at places in the Bible where people had powerful and life-changing encounters with God and how those encounters changed the trajectory of not just their lives, but the lives of those around them as well. So with Easter just a few days from now, I thought it would be appropriate to look at a couple of God encounters surrounding the Easter story. So this morning, we're going to look at Mary, Mandel Mary Magdalene's God encounter and Thomas, Doubting Thomas's God encounter. Now, what makes Mary Magdalene's God encounter so unique is she was the first person to see the Lord after his resurrection. But to help bring some context and application to Mary Magdalene's God encounter, we need to go back to the upper room where the Last Supper took place and listen in on the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples just hours before being arrested and ultimately crucified. The Apostle John, who was there in the upper room with the other disciples, tells us what Jesus said. In John chapter 14, verse 1, says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Why would they be troubled? Because of the events that are about to play out regarding Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now, real quick, this is not talking about the second coming. What Jesus is talking about here are those three days between his crucifixion and resurrection. And we'll, we'll see that as we progress through this morning's message. So Jesus is doing two things here. First, he's warning his disciples about what's to happen to him. And because of that, he's trying to comfort them with the promise of something to look forward to in spite of how bad things are going to get. How he's going to go and prepare a place for them so they can come and have a relationship with the Father. So skip down a few verses in John chapter 14 verses 25 to 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Now, now I want you to please note that Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit and peace in these two verses. That's important to note because of what happens the first time the disciples see him after the resurrection. But we'll come back to that later. Let's continue reading in verses 28 and 29, John 14. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that, now watch this because here Jesus is telling them where he's going to be while he's gone. I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Verse 29, I have told you now, huge phrase coming up, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Jesus tells them, look, I'm telling you all this before it happens, so that when it happens, you'll believe. This is how we know he was talking about his resurrection, not the second coming. How? Because everyone's going to believe in his second coming. There will be no unbelievers at Jesus' second coming. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord when he returns. So, regarding his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm telling you about all this before it happens so that when it happens, you'll believe. And to remind you all about this, I'm going to give you a couple of signs, peace and the Holy Spirit. Now fast forward a couple of chapters in John chapter 16, verse 16. He says, a little while and you will not see me, 
And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. That's the King James Version. I like that phrase, little while up in the Greek, and you know what it means? Little while. Not thousands of years, but a little while. In verses 17 and 18 of John 16. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. In verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Verse 22, now is your time of grief. Now look carefully at this next statement. But I will see you again. He's talking about his resurrection here. And you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Okay, let's go back and summarize what Jesus told his disciples here. In a little while, you won't see me anymore and you're going to have sorrow. But then you're going to see me again and have great joy, joy that no one will be able to take from you. And... And when I come back, I'm going to bring a couple of things with me, peace and the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you all this before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe. Now, with all that as a backdrop, let's skip over a few chapters and read about Mary Magdalene's story. In John chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, that's an important phrase, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Then she runs back to tell the other disciples, specifically that Peter and John, specifically Peter and John, what she had seen. They go back with her to confirm her story. They find out that it's true. Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. So Peter and John eventually leave, and Mary is left alone at the tomb, crying and weeping and mourning. Verses 11 and 12 of John chapter 20. Now as Mary stood outside the tomb crying, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and one at the other, and, and the other at the foot. Verses 13 and 14. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. What, didn't recognize him? That's pretty strange. I mean, she had traveled with Jesus for the previous almost three years. Not constantly, but, but there's no question she spent considerable time with him. See, most people think it was just the 12 disciples that traveled with Jesus during his three and a half years of public ministry. But actually, John tells us that there were some women who were part of this entourage as well. Besides, come on, common sense tells us that there's no way that 12 guys could travel around and take care of themselves. There had to be some women traveling with them, right? And Mary Magdalene was one of those women. So, if she spent that much time with Jesus, why wouldn't she recognize him now in the tomb? Well, there was obviously something different about his appearance. And I'm not talking about just his physical appearance. I mean, he obviously would have looked different after the beatings that he took, the scourging and the crucifixion. But keep in mind, Mary Magdalene was actually one who helped prepare his body for burial. So, she knew what he looked like after the crucifixion. So then what was it? What was so different about how Jesus looked that, that first Easter morning that even someone who had known him so well and traveled with him for over two years didn't recognize him? Well, the only logical answer 
was that the Lord had somehow prevented her from recognizing him, which wasn't the first time something like that had happened, by the way. So let's read on. When the disciples were together with the doors locked for, the, for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. That morning, Mary Magdalene has a God encounter with Jesus, and Jesus told her, don't touch me, I haven't been to the Father yet. Later that same day, after going to see the Father, he sees some of his disciples, Jesus sees some of his disciples, and tells them, don't be scared, it's me, Jesus. See the scars in my hands and my side. And even though it doesn't say specifically that they touched him at that point, it's certainly implied. And we know that shortly after this, as we'll see in a moment when we get to Thomas' story, we're told that Thomas did touch Jesus at Jesus' invitation. Let's read on John 20, verses 21 and 22. Again, Jesus said, now watch this, because here Jesus gives them the two signs he mentioned earlier. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back through uh, this timeline one more time and make sure that we connect all the dots. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room just hours before his crucifixion, what we call the Last Supper. He tells the disciples that he's going away for a little while. You're going to be sad. You're going to experience sorrow because of what's about, uh, because of what's about to happen. But that sorrow will turn to joy in a very short time. You're going to see me, then you won't see me for a short time, then you're going to see me again. And while I'm gone, I'm going to see the Father and make things right with him so that he won't just be my Father, but your Heavenly Father as well. And I'm telling you all this stuff beforehand so that when it happens, you'll believe. And when I come back, I'm going to talk to you about peace and the Holy Spirit, and you'll remember this conversation. Then he appears to Mary at his tomb. She wants to run over and hug him, but he, he tells her that she can't. She can't touch him yet because he hasn't ascended. He hasn't presented himself to the Father. So question, when did Jesus ascend to the Father? Well, the Apostle Paul actually helps explain to us how this all played out. According to Paul, before Jesus ascended to the Father, during those three days between his crucifixion and death and resurrection, he descended into hell or Hades. Why? Two reasons, to take back the keys to death and the grave from Satan and to set all the Old Testament captives free, all those Old Testament saints who were there, because heaven wasn't an option until after the resurrection. So after his death, Jesus descended into Hades, set free all the Old Testament saints, and then he took them to heaven with him. Ephesians 4, verse 8. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, that's what happened on Easter morning, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then verse 9. What does, he, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Some translations say death and the grave. On his way back up to heaven with the Old Testament saints, he stops by earth to chat with Mary. During this encounter, he tells her, don't touch me. I haven't gone before the Father yet. But go tell my disciples I'm ascending right now even as we speak. Later that same day, he appears again and says, okay, you can touch me now. As the Father sent me, I now send you. I have taken care of everything that needs to be done for you to be successful in what I've called you to do. I've now made a way for sinful man to have a personal relationship with the Father. This was Mary Magdalene's story. Now let's look at Thomas's story, the disciple named Thomas. 
You know, he has the dubious distinction of having the nickname Doubting Thomas. But honestly, I think that label is a little unfair when you consider the totality of his life. I mean, this guy, think about it, he followed Jesus faithfully for three years as his disciple. He didn't betray Jesus as Judas did. He didn't deny knowing Jesus as Peter did. He just had some doubts about the real reality of the resurrection of Christ. After those doubts were resolved, he became a leader in the early church and, according to tradition, was a missionary in India before being martyred. He believed in Jesus to the point that it cost him his life. And yet, when we refer to him today, we call him Doubting Thomas. Kind of unfair, isn't it? After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples, showing them his wounds to prove that he was really alive. Thomas wasn't there at that, at that time, at that meeting. And when the other disciples told him about it, he just couldn't believe them. Let's read about it in John 20, verse 25. Thomas says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Fast forward seven days. A week later, it says, When the disciples were gathered together, including Thomas, Jesus appears to them. Before Thomas could say anything, Jesus spoke. Verse 27, John 20. Put your finger here in my hands. Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas's response was in verse 28, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now what makes Thomas's God encounter so important is how it shows us how God responds to our doubts and it teaches us how to deal with our doubts. At some time or another, most people have doubts about their faith. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, that doubt can actually motivate you to nail down what you believe. Anyone ever have any doubts about your faith? I think sometimes people are afraid to admit they have doubts because, I mean, it might look like, you know, it might make God mad or something or make them look like, you know, not a good enough Christian or something like that. Look, I've been doing this a long time, and here's what I know. Everyone goes through times where they have doubts about their faith. You know, maybe not enough to, to cause a faith crisis. Maybe not to the point of walking away from God, although sadly that does happen at times. But come on, be honest. Haven't you at times wondered, is all this really true? Years ago I was talking about doubt in one of my sermons, and afterwards someone came up to me, and, and I could tell they were sort of hesitant. They, they kind of walked up to me, and, and they said, Pastor, and and then they kind of paused and kind of looked over each shoulder to see if anyone was listening. They said, Pastor, do you ever have any doubts? I looked at them and I sort of did the same thing that they did. I kind of looked over each shoulder before I answered and said, Never. Only sinners doubt. They got this real puzzled and concerned look on their face. I said, Really? I said, Of course I have doubts. Everyone has doubts at times. You just, you just can't live there. So real quick, three things we learn from Thomas's God encounter that will help us anytime we struggle with doubts. First, realize that God doesn't abandon you when you have doubts. Look, doubt is not the same as disbelief. It's simply seeking further evidence to confirm the validity of what appears to be and professes to be true. Now keep in mind, there's a difference between doubt and closed-mindedness. Some people reject Christianity without ever examining it. For whatever reason, they, they decide that it isn't true, and they never even take a closer look. If you talk to them about faith, they won't hear you. Their mind is made up. That's not doubt. That's closed-mindedness. 
That's not the attitude Thomas had. He didn't say, nothing will change my mind. He said, I need more evidence before I believe. I want to see the same thing you've seen. I want to see his hands inside. And see, that's a huge statement because it shows us that Thomas wanted to believe. He really did. We know that because a week later, he was still hanging out with the disciples. See, if his mind was already closed, he would have left the, the others a long time ago. Jesus didn't punish Thomas for having doubts. He didn't say, okay, doubting Thomas, from now on, I want nothing to do with you. Instead, he appeared specifically to Thomas, called him out of the group, and answered his doubts. And as a result, Thomas believed. If you have doubts, don't use them as an excuse to avoid seeking God. Instead, let your doubts drive you deeper into a search for truth. And keep on searching until you're convinced one way or the other. Which leads us to the second thing that we learn from Thomas's God's encounter. The Christian faith can withstand intense scrutiny. You know, when a business claims that their financial status is solid, you have to ask, well, what's the basis of this claim? So if they say, well, you know, we still have lots of checks in our checkbook, so that means we must have lots of money, then you know that that business is in trouble. But if they say, we have three full-time accountants on staff who track every penny in each department, plus each year we're audited by an independent firm and they give us a top rating. See, if they say that, then you know that that is a company that can back up their claims. They can endure an IRS audit or any other kind of challenge that comes along. You know, some religions are based on a foundation about as flimsy as the guy who thinks that he still has money because he still has checks in his checkbook. Christianity isn't that way. Christianity is, is like the company whose books balance to the penny. No matter how closely you examine the claims of Christ, he always, always, always passes the test. He can endure intense scrutiny because he's God. So don't run from your doubts. Examine them. Look for the answers. You have nothing to fear from the truth. God doesn't abandon us when we have doubts. The Christian faith can withstand scrutiny. And the third thing that we learn from Thomas's God encounter is after all the evidence is in, still it's going to require faith. When Thomas touched Jesus, Jesus said in verse 27 of John 20, stop doubting and believe. The implication is that Thomas, even after touching the resurrected Christ, could have continued to doubt. He could have continued to find reasons not to believe. When it comes to things of a spiritual nature, there's always room for doubt because there must be room for faith. The question is, which of these will you accommodate? If you're inclined not to believe, many of Jesus' miracles can be explained away which is exactly what closed-minded people do. Look, there's always room for doubt because there must always be room for faith. When you examine the Christian faith, you'll significantly narrow the gap between doubt and certainty. But you won't close the gap completely. That will never happen. There will always be an element of faith involved. Why? Because the Bible is very clear about these two facts. First, our relationship with God is ignited by faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And second, our relationship with God is sustained by our faith. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. So following Christ requires a step of faith. But it's not a step into the dark. It's a step into the light. And it's, and it's not a step that we take without supporting evidence. At some point you must take that step where you stop doubting and start believing. Thomas took that step. He had to discover the truth for himself. And when he did, 
Watch this. When he did, he recognized that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead and he put his faith completely in him. He said to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. So look, if you have doubts, don't ignore them. Examine them. Read books, ask questions, study the Bible, seek the truth. And more than anything else, after you've weighed the evidence, I hope and pray that you will allow yourself to reach the point where, like Thomas, you can stop doubting and believe. From Thomas's story, we learned that not only is it okay to have doubts about our faith, but that those doubts can actually serve to confirm our belief and faith in Christ. Listen, dear ones, God doesn't get nervous or mad when we doubt. In fact, he actually gives us the promise of a blessing that Thomas would not get because right after Thomas saw and touched the Lord and declared, my Lord and my God, look carefully at what Jesus said. His very next words were in John 20, 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now look, this wasn't Jesus trying to weasel his way out of proving who he was, giving himself an out. No, this was his way of honoring our faith. From Mary Magdalene's story, because of her God encounter, we learn about how Jesus, the unblemished sacrificial lamb, presented himself to the Father as an atonement for our sins so that we too can now call him our Heavenly Father. If you're here this morning or part of our eCampus church watching online and maybe you're wrestling with some doubt right now, maybe you've gone through something or maybe you're going through something even right now that's, that's really stretching your faith. You know, maybe even to the point of, of, of uh, having you, giving you some serious questions, causing you to wonder if this God and church and, and, church and Jesus stuff is, is really legit. If that's you, I just want you to know that God's not nervous about that. He's not even mad about it. In fact, he invites you to have your own Thomas God encounter. Just like Thomas, who was so open and honest about his doubts, he even threw the challenge out to Jesus. Unless I see and touch him, I won't believe it. If that's where you're at right now, I just want you to know that God's okay with that. He just doesn't want you to stay there. And just like God honored that honest, desperate stance of Thomas, so also will he do the same with you, so that you can echo the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. Or perhaps declare the words of Mary Magdalene, when after her God encounter, she ran and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Jesus told Thomas, stop doubting and believe. But please understand, there will always be some element of faith required of us. So, if you're willing to be honest with yourself and with God about your doubts and skepticism, and are willing to seek him, and are ready to take that next step of faith, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer where God can make that happen. I want to lead you in a prayer that you can, you can repeat these words after me, either out loud or under your breath or even just in your mind. How you do it's not important. What's important is that you believe in your heart what you're praying. So, would you just, just pray this prayer with me? Say, Lord Jesus, please reveal yourself to me in a fresh and powerful way so that I can, like Mary, declare I have seen the Lord. And like Thomas, confess that Jesus is my Lord and my God. So right now, by faith, I'm asking Jesus Christ to, to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me from all my past failures and offenses. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, born of a virgin who died for my sins and rose from the dead three days later to give me the hope of eternal life in God's presence and the privilege of calling God my Heavenly Father. And right now, I'm inviting Him into my life, into my heart. Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, come dwell inside of me 
and help me begin living my life for you as I look to you and your word each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good Palm Sunday, everyone.